Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Another mild winter is behind us, and officials say it's having an effect on a population that no one likes ticks. Today where we live, we'll hear more on why the population is worse this year and what can be done to prevent tick-borne diseases like Lyme and other illnesses you may not have heard of caused by viruses like Powassan. Coming up, we'll hear about efforts to strengthen testing for Lyme disease. But first, have you noticed that ticks are a problem already where you live? Does news that ticks could be an even bigger problem this year impact how long you spend outside? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back into the studio a frequent guest on Where We Live over the years, uh, Dr. Theodore Andriotis, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, also head of the Center for Vector Biology and Zoonotic Diseases. Dr. Andriotis, welcome back. It's good to be here. Remind our listeners about the work that's being done at the Agricultural Experiment Station. Well, at the Agricultural Experiment Station, uh, we're the oldest agricultural experiment station in the country dating back to 1875, and uh, we conduct basic research in four core areas, including agriculture, the environment, including forestry, uh, chemistry, uh, food safety, and public health. And our public health programs are mostly focused on uh, control of uh, vector-borne diseases, uh, those that are transmitted by mosquitoes and ticks. And we have had longstanding programs uh, on tick control, uh, tick biology, as well as monitoring the state for mosquito-borne diseases, which we've done since 1996. We're here today to talk about ticks. I was reading the related to the spider. What are they traditionally active, and what are we seeing this year? Well, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we are experiencing an extraordinary season uh, for ticks. Uh, the number of ticks that are coming into our tick testing facility are are outrageous. Uh, they're essentially tenfold higher than anything that we have ever seen. And in our insect inquiry office, uh, we're getting calls uh, constantly from citizens of the state talking about ticks. How do I control them? Uh, why are we seeing so many? Uh, we're not entirely sure, but we think there's two factors involved. Uh, one is the mild winters that we have been experiencing. I think that has resulted in higher overwintering survival of the ticks, which are in the leaf litter. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, we've seen a, a, a significant increase in the number of small rodents, uh, specifically the uh, white-footed mouse, which serves as the primary host for the larval stage of this tick, which has a two-year life cycle. And why, we got, why do we see more of these uh, small rodents? It's because we've had a period of um, very high production of acorns. So it's, it's, it's all interwoven, but it seems to be a function of the increased uh, abundance of these white-footed mice, which serve as the host for the ticks, and the mild winters. And uh, we haven't even reached the peak season right mm -hmm. now. Most of what's coming into our laboratory are adult stages, uh, and uh, these have been overwintering. And then as we move into late May and 
early June, that's when we're going to see the nymphal stages, uh, which are a more significant risk because they're smaller, and usually we see a higher percentage of these infected with uh, Lyme disease, spirochetes, and other infectious agents. Uh, so in addition to getting these large numbers of ticks coming into our laboratory for testing, we're also seeing a higher prevalence of Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the organism that causes Lyme disease. Mm. Uh, right now in our testing, um, and we've done over a thousand already this season, which is quite high for us. So we're seeing about 38% of these ticks that are infected uh, with the spirochete causing Lyme disease, and that's alarming. In addition to this, another 10 to 15% are infected with Babesia, uh, which causes disease, and another four or five with this anaplasma. So uh, these are cause uh, for concern. Say that again. How many of these ticks that, you have, that you've tested are testing positive for Lyme? Almost 50% of the ticks, no, 38% uh, for Lyme, mm -hmm. but over 50% of the ticks are infected with one or more of mm -hmm. these organisms that can cause human disease. And, and so this is quite high. And we were asking you about, um, you know, when do you normally see the season begin? And you said you, people, you're already seeing the season beginning. But and when you look at the, the hours of the day, when are ticks most active? Uh, any time of the day, time when you're out there, you could possibly pick them up. And even if you're walking in early evening uh, and they're there questing, you can pick them up. Yeah. So um, we've been telling folks, you know, if you're going to be out uh, hiking in areas where ticks are abundant, you should just assume that you're going to pick them up. Uh, in the past work that we have done, uh, most people pick up these ticks in and around the home. And the areas of highest risk are generally at that border between your manicured lawns and as you move into the wooded forest area. So in that brushy area where you have high amounts of vegetation, that's where you're likely going to encounter them. And don't forget, your pets are going to pick them up. Pets can bring them into the home as well. And uh, the best way to protect yourself, you know, we always say, well, wear long pants, tuck in your sock, your uh, pants and your socks. This will certainly help. But as you get into the mild weather, you know, people are going to be wearing shorts. And there's nothing short of just checking yourself very, very closely uh, when you come back into the house. If you've been out, uh, parents do check your children closely uh, because they're likely to pick up ticks. Uh, we've had children picking up ticks even in schoolyards. And um, you want to check um, around behind your ankles, uh, behind uh, under your armpits, uh, behind your knees, uh, at the base of your scalp, around your ear areas. That's where they sometimes will attach, especially mm -hmm. in children. And these ticks attach rather quickly. Mm. You know, within an hour of picking them up, they're going to start feeding. And so that, I wanted to say that this again is Dr. Theodore Andriotis, Director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. You're listening to where we live today as we talk about the surging tick population and what you can do to protect yourself. Uh, also, we're hearing about, um, as Dr. Andriotis said, as they're testing the ticks that are coming into the, the Agricultural uh, Experiment Station, nearly one in four are coming uh, through as having that bacteria that causes Lyme disease. If you have questions for our guest, 860 0275-7266. Now, let's talk about when someone finds a tick on them and how, depending on what we're talking about, if the tick carries the bacteria that causes Lyme or, say, something new, we're hearing about this Powassan virus, how quickly, if you get the tick off of you, how quickly are you susceptible to getting that bacteria that causes Lyme or other illnesses? With um Lyme disease, and even with Babesia, it takes a while for the ticks to transmit uh, these infectious organisms. And in the case of Lyme disease, if you can remove a tick within 48 
to 72 hours, even if that tick is infected, the likelihood of you becoming infected is greatly reduced. Uh, so you've got a little bit of time, so that's important. This new Powassan virus is of concern because ticks that carry this virus can transmit it in a matter of minutes, uh, as short as 15 minutes of feeding. And uh, this Powassan virus is a, is a concern, and it's something that we're doing some research on now and, and looking at very closely. Uh, the concerns with this particular virus, number one, as I indicated, is that the same tick that carries Lyme disease uh, transmits this virus very, very quickly. Uh, number two, because it is a virus, uh, the antibiotics which are effective against Lyme disease and those for Babesia are not effective. So there's no effective treatment, nor is there a vaccine for this virus. And unfortunately, uh, the virus uh, can attack the, the central nervous system, <clears throat> and there have been fatalities related with it. Um, the good news is that we're finding in our survey work a relatively small percentage of ticks that are infected mm -hmm. in the state, uh, generally about 3 to 4 percent, in some cases even lower. Um, so recently, that's the good news. And recently there was an infant that was tested positive for Powassan virus. That infant luckily has recovered? Yes. Up until uh, just most recently, uh, there had been a number of human cases that had been reported throughout the Northeast region. The majority of these had been in New York State, but they've been reported from Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire. Uh, we were the only state in the New England. Just recently, uh, the CDC did report a five-month-old child that did contract um, Powassan virus. Uh, based on the reports that I have seen, the child has fully recovered, um, but there were some serious issues there. Uh, and uh, that uh, family lived out in the uh, Griswold area, and apparently the uh, father had picked up the tick uh, while hunting in the Stonington area and brought it mm -hmm. into the house, and the tick uh, fed on their son. But right now, Powassan virus is still very rare? It's relatively rare, yes, but it's still something to take into consideration. One of the things that we're doing um, with our research program right now is trying to get a better handle on just how widely distributed it is in the state. So we're collecting ticks from various locations, and we're testing them for the Powassan virus. Right now, we're not able to test for Powassan virus in our tick testing facility uh, because we just don't have the uh, personnel uh, in the time right now. I want to take a call. Uh, Kurt's calling from Hamden. Kurt, you're on the show. Hi. I, so I've got a, a, a question for your guests. I've heard about how uh, there's this uh, new approach to controlling uh, mosquito-borne uh, illnesses by uh, infecting mosquitoes with certain bacteria and then releasing them into the environment, uh, which apparently uh, can make them ineffective vectors uh, uh, for carrying some of the most common diseases. I, I also understand with ticks that uh, uh, one of the big vectors we have are mice that carry them into our home. Is there any uh, chance that we could uh, infect mice uh, in an appropriate way to, to make the, the, the ticks that feed on them uh, uh, ineffective uh, vectors? Uh, one of the things that we're doing, what you're referring to with mosquitoes is this Wolbachia. It's a, a bacterium that occurs in some mosquito species, and if you get a strain of Wolbachia in mosquitoes, the male mosquitoes will mate with the females. They transmit this Wolbachia, and then these females will produce eggs that will not hatch. Uh, we don't have a system like that uh, for controlling ticks right now. One of the things that we are doing is Dr. Kirby Stafford has a grant from the CDC, and he's evaluating uh, this new um, Lyme vaccine uh, that we're trying to vaccinate the mice 
so that if the mice uh, pick up the spirochete, it will not develop. They will not develop a high enough parasitemia so that the ticks that feed on them. And that's a research program that we do have in place. This is not available yet uh, for the homeowner, but the idea is that if we can vaccinate the, the mice, which serve as the host for the, for the larval ticks, then these ticks will not become infected and then will not be transmitting when they molt into the nymphal stage. This is where we live. We're talking about the tick population today. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Dr. Andriotis, I wanted to get into the CDC grant that the experiment station received as a collaboration with other uh, universities and research centers. Tell us about that and how it's working uh, to hopefully combat this problem. Yes, we were uh, one of uh, four laboratories in the country uh, that did receive this funding uh, to establish the Northeast Regional Center of Excellence in Vector-Borne Diseases. This is a collaborative program uh, between our institution at the Agricultural Experiment Station, Cornell University, which will serve as the lead, uh, researchers from Fordham, researchers from Columbia University, as well as uh, staff um, and public health officials from the Department of Public Health in New York as well in Connecticut. And this is a five-year program, and the purpose of this program uh, is, number one, to train the next generation of public health entomologists and to address these existing and newly emerging vector-borne diseases. Those are diseases transmitted by mosquitoes and ticks, uh, including this new Powassan virus, including uh, Zika virus, uh, and many of the others. So uh, with this program uh, that will run for five years, we'll be able to enhance our research capabilities, enhance our surveillance capabilities, and focus on developing methods to not only monitor but to control these vector-borne diseases as we move forward. Uh, We are seeing an expansion in the range of some of our exotic mosquito species. We've got this new uh, Asian tiger mosquito uh, that is a potential vector of Zika virus. It has moved into the state and our research now shows that it is establishing down in lower Fairfield County along the coast and with projected climate change it could move further into the state. Uh, There's no indication yet that the Zika virus has moved into that mosquito but we are monitoring very closely. Uh, joining the conversation now is Connecticut's U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Senator Blumenthal, thanks for calling in. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Uh, you were here just recently in the state announcing this CDC grant that Dr. Andriotis uh, just mentioned. Tell us about how concerned you are about the news that the tick population is surging. How effective do you think this grant will be? I'm deeply concerned uh, that the numbers of mosquitoes and ticks and other kinds of uh, wildlife that are carrying this disease are increasing. The numbers of ticks are increasing very, very alarmingly, but also the numbers of ticks tested positive for the Lyme disease agent has risen from 27% over the previous five years to 38% in the past year. So this kind of trend is really alarming because it shows that the disease is spreading not only Lyme, but Babesia, Powassan. Uh, a lot of people saw the publicity about the young child, five-month-old child, who was infected with Powassan, which made the headlines. But every day people are infected with Lyme disease, and it is very underdiagnosed and underreported. The statistics show that only one in ten 
people who have Lyme are actually diagnosed with it, and it's it's underreported uh, even more gravely. So, bottom line, I've been working on this issue for many years as Attorney General. I advocated insurance coverage for Lyme treatment. Now, as U.S. Senator, I've advanced measures to provide more funding, and this $10 million in CDC funding for the whole collaborative effort. It's a center of excellence that will include Cornell, Columbia, Fordham, as well as Connecticut's health department and New York. And I think it will be very, very important in trying to develop better diagnosis, better treatment, and more public awareness. Because at the end of the day, prevention of Lyme by checking for the ticks, looking for the bullseye rash, and also wearing insect repellent and the proper clothing when people go into the woods is one of the best ways to cure the disease. The prevention is the best form of cure, and I hope that awareness will result from this grant as well. And, and Senator Blumenthal, we hear and we see the data that this is a big problem in the Northeast. I, I think also Lyme disease being diagnosed in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, but tell us how um, you're asking, I think you sent a letter to the Health and Human Services Secretary about a, a tick-borne working group. What do you hope that will accomplish? I hope that we'll have bipartisan support and cooperation in combating this insidious and pernicious disease. Anybody who has experienced it, knows how terrible it is. Its effect can be crippling, particularly for young people. And I think there ought to be bipartisan support. That's the reason that I've written to Secretary Price, along with Senator Gillibrand of New York. But here is the interesting point that's raised by your question. It's a great question. I think that around the country, there's growing incidence of this disease. It's not only the Northeast anymore. It's the West Coast. It's southern states, awareness and, in fact, incidence of this disease, vector-borne diseases like Lyme and babiosis and Powassan and uh, other kinds of similar pathogens are becoming a national problem, and that's why we need bipartisan cooperation across the country and why I've written to Secretary Price asking him for an update and a status report on the provisions in the 21st Century Cure Act. Those provisions were adopted at my urging. Uh, they essentially embody the in legislation I introduced called uh, Tick-Borne Disease Prevention Education and Research Act of 2016. Those provisions were embodied in the 21st Century Cures Act. And I want an explanation from Secretary Price about what is happening to that working group that will form the basis for generate more diagnosis, more treatment, more awareness about Lyme. We're going to need to take a break uh, pretty soon, but I wanted to go back to Dr. Andriotis, again, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Um, it's great news that the federal government's giving a grant to help uh, start the center up, uh, both Senator Blumenthal and Dr. Andriotis. But we haven't yet talked to Dr. Andriotis about how state budget problems are curbing uh, how quickly you can uh, test these ticks and, and respond to the problem. Tell us about that. Yeah, we're a bit overwhelmed right now because of the sheer numbers that are coming into our tick testing facility. Uh, this program, uh, which is completely state-supported, uh, began about 10 years ago. And at that time, the primary focus was screening ticks for Lyme disease because that was the only infectious agent that we were aware of. However, with the rise of these other agents, including Babesia and Anaplasma, uh, we enhanced the program uh, two years ago. 
and uh, brought in a new scientist and uh, developed some new molecular techniques. So now we're able to screen for all three of these pathogens, which is very important. And number two, we're using uh, uh, more modern techniques uh, using molecular biology where we're detecting uh, uh, by PCR uh, the uh, um, DNA of these organisms. And so our turnaround time has been uh, greatly reduced to one or two days now. In the past, it used to take us up to two weeks. But right now, with the numbers coming in, we just can't keep up with it. Uh, and unfortunately, we had a full-time technician assigned to the program. She left for another position. So uh, we're short-staffed. We're keeping it going right now with some seasonals, uh, employees, as well as volunteers uh, that are working uh, in the laboratory to just to keep up with the numbers. So our turnaround time now is probably about a week, uh, and we're trying to do the best that we can. Uh, and I think even the local health departments are kind of feeling sorry for us right mm. now uh, and some of the physicians. And the point being is that it's really important that we have a very short turnaround time on this because uh, the health departments and the physicians that are requesting these testings are utilizing uh, the information they get from us in terms of follow-up treatment. Uh, so we're doing the best that we can, uh, but uh, it's, it's a real onslaught that, that we're faced with this spring. And as I mentioned earlier, we haven't even reached the peak yet, uh, which usually doesn't occur until late May and June. And so I don't know how we're going to handle that, to tell you the truth. We know that ticks are a public health concern, and we just heard you say, Dr. Andriotis, because of, of budget concerns, not being able to rehire someone as a technician um, to help with the testing that you're relying on volunteers? Yes, we are. We have a, uh, a young lady who um, um, retired um, several years ago, and she called and said, can you use my help? And we said, sure, come on in. And then we have some other student volunteers that are working in the laboratory as well. Uh, so we're doing the best that we can. We do not want to suspend this program. We really do not. Um, so we'll do the best that we can and try to get a short turnaround time uh, to because we know this is a very popular program. Uh, the public really relies on this, and uh, we want to be able to do this for them. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about an increase in the tick population and tick-borne disease, not only in Connecticut, but throughout the Northeast. I want to thank U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal for joining us. Dr. Theodore Andriotis will remain with us as we continue to discuss ticks and the dangers they pose to public health. Coming up, we'll be joined by another doctor, and we're going to take your questions. Please stay with us. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The weather is warming up and the time we spend outdoors is naturally increasing, but officials in the state are warning us about something you may have already noticed in your own backyard, an exploding tick population. What questions do you have about Lyme disease and other illnesses caused by ticks? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Dr. Theodore Andriotis is with us, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. And joining us now in studio is Dr. Ulysses Wu, chief of infection diseases at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Dr. Wu, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're an infectious disease specialist, as I mentioned. How concerned are you about this news that the tick population um, is is expected to rise this summer? I I think concern is really dependent on the level of what concern you're going to have. I I expect that the tick populations are going to go through these cycles of boom and bust. And in a a boom situation, we're obviously going to see a lot more diseases associated with these ticks. 
And the question is, are we going to be able to accurately diagnose these patients? Because we obviously want to treat them mm -hmm. as well. Um, so uh, what, what we're mostly worried about is if we do see a surge in these patients, that if they do get these diagnoses, that they're recognized early. Um, when we talk, talk about symptoms, what should people look for? If they happen to see a tick on them, <laughs> hopefully it's not engorged. That always grosses me out when I see that on my dog. But um, when you take it off, what should you be looking for in the next 24, 48 hours? So what happens is I, 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 agree, I agree with the good doctor's uh, previous <laughs> assertion that uh, it does take time for this to transmit. But there are other diseases that can be transmitted, and they can be transmitted earlier. And so we do have a plethora of diseases, probably up to four that can be carried by one single tick. So what you'll notice is that a lot, a lot of times when it hasn't been engorged, you'll actually notice a local reaction um, that the tick has. And a lot of tick bites, not just this particular tick, but a lot of ticks will produce a local reaction. That's not necessarily this bullseye rash that we certainly see, this erythema migrans. But after time, so what what happens is it takes time for it to incubate. So anywhere from three to 30 days thereafter, we can look for early early signs if we're talking about Lyme. And usually it's just a fever. Well, we talk about the rash, the bullseye rash, but they can also have a fever, a malaise, where they just don't feel well, uh, where they can maybe have some nonspecific joint pains as well. But with some of these other diseases, they, they produce other symptoms. Now, the problem is that these are called nonspecific symptoms. So is it due to Lyme disease? Is it due to anaplasmosis? Is it due to babesiosis? Is it due to the virus that they got from their child who was in daycare? Um, there's there's a lot of things, and trying to sort through this is certainly a diagnostic dilemma for us. I wanted to take some calls now. Um, first, uh, Andy's calling from Woodbridge. Andy, you're on the show. Hello. Yes, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, first, uh, I just want to make a comment. I'm in the, the Yukon Master Gardener program, and one of the things that we learned was that the invasive barberry, um, yeah, the invasive barberry plant can be a, a, um, a nesting site for mice, which are an alternate vector for the for the Lyme for the deer tick that carries the disease. So, if people could be um, you know learn to identify this plant and to remove it, you do two things: one, uh, remove a, a nesting site for the alternate alternate vector, and also help control this terrible plant pest. All right. Uh, so I just wanted to, wanted to make that comment. I just had a question too for your your experts there. Um, I did get one tick embedded on me when I was working on some barberry um, and didn't find it in time. I got it off, you know, it was within 12 hours. Um, but removing a tick, and it seems, um, are there good techniques you could, you could recommend? Because I, you know, I, I studied this and I thought I did the technique correctly. You know, I soaked the, the, the tweezers in alcohol and I kind of doused the tick with rubbing alcohol first and pulled straight up with the firm grip from the tweezers and the, and the, the, the mouth part still broke off. And I'm wondering what, what's, what do you recommend in terms of removal? Well, thank you for that comment and question. I know we don't uh, want to see when you pull a tick out where part of it's still in your skin. Dr. Andreas, can you, uh, can you give him some Yeah, answers? I think uh, the best way is to sort of grab the tick uh, either with a f forceps if you can or even with your fingers and gently, gently try to mo remove it so that the mouth parts do not break off. Because uh, oftentimes, if the mouth parts break off, uh, you're likely to get a bacterial infection that will occur secondarily. So uh, we suggest, and Dr. Liu can comment on that, that after you do remove the tick, uh, that you either put an antiseptic on or a baxitracin so that you don't get the secondary bacterial infection. 
Yeah, it's kind of like removing a nail. You want to uh, do it. Uh, you want to grab at the bottom and you want to pull up. Uh, you definitely don't want to squeeze the tick. Uh, that's mm-hmm. for sure because you can certainly whatever it may be carrying um, it could could be I guess inoculated into you. There's uh, if you look up the internet because Google is always correct. And so if you look at all the the Google reasons like burning it off, petroleum jelly, <laughs> I, I wouldn't suggest any of these. There's only one method, and I, I agree. You, you want to grab as close to the to the skin as possible, and you want to cleanse the area as well. Uh, we heard Dr. Andriotta say that um, they're seeing cases of children are picking up ticks in the schoolyard. Mm-hmm. So if a, your child comes home and maybe they, you see a tick at the base of their scalp or somewhere on their body, should you be proactive and have them tested for Lyme disease, or do you wait to see if there's any symptoms that come up? Well, the best thing that I would actually recommend in these cases is actually if once you take the tick off, you keep the tick because you're going to want to give it to a provider. There are many, 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 as you, as, as the good doctor knows, there's lots of different ticks. Uh, first of all, not Oh, only one of them really carries Lyme disease, and not all ticks carry Lyme disease, though, as we have stated before, that it's been increasing. So we can take a look at the tick and just determine what type of tick that it is. Uh, to answer your, the original question, I would not test because these, test, these tests are not positive early on. Um, testing is always fraught with peril, uh, you know, with, with Lyme disease. So the question is, is this the type of tick that can transmit it? Are there symptoms that will develop? So this, the characteristic rash uh, that may develop, then absolutely. Now, there are cases where we believe if it is that tick and there's no symptoms that we can do a prophylactic dose, a one-time dose of, uh, it's called post-exposure prophylaxis, a one-time dose of an antibiotic that may mitigate any of these symptoms. Um, Andy from Woodbridge also mentioned this invasive plant where the uh, mice and ticks can be found. I've always heard that you need to keep your yard cut very short, but we've seen ticks on our children playing in the yard, and we keep the grass short, and they're not in the woods. So what do you do then? Usually if you keep your grass short, that you should be fine. As I uh, indicated earlier on, the, the, the prime area of greatest exposure to ticks is usually that uh, border between your wooded backyard and your manicured area. And you need a good buffer zone there. And it's usually within that region there where you've got some low-lying vegetation, some taller grasses that you're more likely to pick up the ticks. Uh, We do know uh, about the Japanese barberry, which is an invasive plant. We've been doing a a series of uh, studies in this area, and we've shown that if you can Uh, rogue out a lot of this Japanese barberry, you can really significantly reduce the number of ticks in the area. The barberry creates a wonderful haven uh, for these field mice, and it also creates a a very uh, humid area. Uh, So these ticks do extremely well when it's uh, humid and it's damp. Uh, When you get hot, dry areas with a strong exposure to sun, the ticks don't survive. So if you've got Japanese barberry, be careful because this is a prime area for picking them up. And if you have it, you want to try to get rid of it. You mentioned the the place between your manicured lawn and the wooded area. If you put down mulch, does that help? Mulch will be good. Uh, Rocks, a hardscape will also be effective too because they generally won't quest over that hardscape. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about uh, the surging tick population and how you can um, prevent tick bites. Uh, in studio with me is Dr. Andriotis from the director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, also Dr. Ulysses Wu, chief of infectious diseases at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Jim is calling from Meriden. Jim, you're on the show. Thank you very much. 
Um, does insect repellent have any role in prevention above and beyond the other measures you described? Thank you, Jim, for your question. Yeah, the insect repellent will help to a certain degree, but it's not terribly effective against ticks. Uh, it's much more effective. Those uh, that contain the compound DEET is very effective for mosquitoes. What we have found is that the um, pyrethroid-based repellents, this is actually an insecticide and a caricide. Those are the most effective, but with these pyrethroid-based repellents, they cannot be applied directly to the skin, only to the clothing. I've heard people will spray their yard for ticks, but then there's the concern, are you then killing the beneficial insects in your yard? What well, do you do? If you're, you can control ticks in the yard with uh, spraying, uh, and a lot of pest control companies are doing this and putting down a barrier spray uh, in that area, which I described previously where they're questing. And yes, uh, that can be effective. Uh, Vic is calling from Avon. Vic, you're on the show. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you, Dr. Andriotis and Dr. Wu and Lucy. Um, I live in the Farmington Valley, and I'm sure I'm speaking for many, many residents that uh, our dogs are primary carriers of the ticks that they pick up in the woods, in the fields. Um, I actually had 152 ticks on two dogs once at one time, and I have documented it with a photograph if anyone questions that. Um, and I identified, you know, which ticks were deer ticks, and then I finally gave up. Then I had 110 on another dog, and it, two years later, I finally gave up and started applying tick preventative pet products, which I always resisted in doing because of the chemicals in that, you know. And I'm sure there are a lot of other dog owners who are as concerned as I am about, you know, not only the efficacy of these, because I've heard that the, res the ticks have developed a resistance to some of the products. And I would like one of the doctors to comment on that. And finally, and I'll get a listen off, air, off the phone, um, there's a wonderful resource, the tick, TickEncounter.org, which our sister state, Rhode Island, has uh, been affiliated with. And it's a great way to identify which ticks y you know, you've encountered. Thank you. Thank you for your comment and questions. Uh, any answers for him? On Un the, the unfortunately, I, I can't answer that question concerning the development of resistance of the ticks or some of the uh, fipronol-based uh, products that are given to your pet. I think you'd have to speak to veterinarians. Uh, my understanding is that they are at least to some degree uh, effective. Um, yes, that tick encounter is very good. It's available online, so you can uh, determine what tick you have. I should tell you that about 98% of the ticks that people bring into us are Exodia scapularis, which is the vector of Lyme disease and Babesia. Uh, we do get a few American dog ticks, Dermacenter variabilis. This is a larger tick uh, that uh, does not feed as quickly when you pick it up, uh, so you're likely to, uh, to notice that before it actually attaches. Uh, but that's a relatively small percentage of the ticks that are feeding on people that are turned into our tick testing facility. I wanted to turn back to Dr. Wu. Earlier you mentioned um, if someone has symptoms, if they test positive for Lyme disease, um, antibiotics are given. Talk to us about um, how curable Lyme disease is. Lyme disease, uh, so there are myths out there about Lyme disease. Lyme disease is very curable, uh, especially if it is caught within enough time. And what we are seeing is that even after treatment, people may have uh, symptoms after treatment for maybe months, uh, well, maybe days to weeks, but sometimes months to years. But uh, it, it, if, if caught, even at any stage, it's actually, it's, it, it is treatable and it is curable. Uh, we haven't spoken uh, too much about some of the other illnesses caused by uh, ticks. Uh, 
obviously Lyme disease gets a lot of attention. Tell us more about the other, and they're hard to pronounce, but uh, what people should be looking for, and is there concern there? So actually, I want to allude to what Dr. Blumenthal said actually earlier about uh, the disease being spread to other parts of the country as well. My biggest concern is trying to accurately diagnose these patients. So Lyme disease, it it gets a lot of press because it is a real disease. Um, But unfortunately, what we're doing is we're missing some of these other diseases. And as an infectious disease practitioner, I'm more scared about a lot of these other diseases, uh, although Lyme has its worrisome uh, characteristics as well. So, for example, we've talked about babesiosis, which they've referred to as the malaria of the Northeast. Uh, So we are certainly seeing babesia. uh, Anaplasmosis is a disease that I actually see more hospitalized patients with anaplasma and babesia as compared to Lyme disease. Um, a lot of these diseases, so there's other diseases such as Borrelia myomotoi. So what we're starting to see is actually a whole increase of other diseases uh, that are associated that have once once had been called Lyme but is not called Lyme. So we talked about, Dr. Blumenthal, these diseases being located in other parts of the country. There's something called STARI, Southern Tick-Associated Rash-Like Illness, which is actually happens in the uh, mid uh, in, in the Midwest, uh, South Central area that has been mistaken for Lyme. Lyme has been isolated. It's a different vector uh, in, in California. Uh, it's a different, different Ixodes uh, tick. But my concern is making sure that we get the right diagnoses because there are, I think New England Journal of Medicine published something where they, were, they identified a whole bunch of other diseases that can be transmitted that were once thought of as Lyme, but they're, they're new diseases. Powassan being, uh, actually, Powassan's been around since 1958, uh, from what I believe. Uh, its vector, it, it was a different tick, but somehow it shifted to Ixodes, and please correct me if I'm wrong, okay. and that's why in the past few decades we're starting to see an increase, I think 70 cases over the last 10 years. Yeah. And those are treatable? Uh, well, so Powassan is a virus. You cannot treat that. Anaplasma, you certainly can. Babesia, you certainly can. But they call it the malaria because it depends on the d- degree of what we call parasitemia, that it's infecting your cells. So if you have a high burden, yes, it can be treated, but it's going to be treated with different methods than if you had a low burden. Viruses are mostly supportive treatment. So this Powassan virus is actually thought to be related to a whole other lineage of northeast uh, what they call encephalitis viruses as well, and almost all of them we treat uh, supportively because there is no treatment. But yes, there is treatment for some of these other diseases. Um, I wanted to take another quick call, and then coming up we're going to hear more about the new research being done to make the test more conclusive. Uh, Keith has been holding from Southbury. Keith, you're on the show. Hello. How you doing? Great Good. show. Go ahead, Keith. Uh, just in the last 12 hours, I've probably pulled four ticks off my kids and dogs, so it's really good to have you hear you talk about it. I had a question about the environment. Uh, you said that the, the mild weathers uh, cause more ticks, but I was wondering, uh, is that true? Because like other areas where it's warmer, you don't have that issue. And if you have a hard freeze, I mean, how cold does it have to get to actually kill ticks? Or is it really more of a matter of uh, killing, say, the host, like the mice that you mm-hmm. talked about? Mm-hmm. And then uh, one other question, if you can, uh, about uh, vaccines. There used to be a Lyme vaccine, and it's not anymore. And you can get a vaccine for your dogs, and I was wondering why you can't get that for humans. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Keith, for your questions. Uh, first, the, the cold freeze question. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the question as best I can on the uh, climate and weather influences. Uh, we don't know entirely. We're not entirely sure. These uh, ticks will overwinter 
off of the host animal and the nymphal stages overwinter and the adults that we're seeing right now, these are adults that overwintered in the leaf litter uh, that did not have an opportunity to feed in the fall. And we, uh, when we had those mild temperatures in February, we had citizens bringing ticks to us uh, for, for testing, which is really sort of unheard of. So we do think it is a function of the milder weather, which has allowed a greater percentage of these overwintering ticks to survive in the leaf litter. When we have a lot of snow, this pr provides insulation, and so they are protected. Uh, reasons that we don't see some of these diseases in the south is you don't have all the various factors involved. Uh, the principal host and the source of, of the uh, Lyme disease spirochete and also Babesia are these white-footed mice, and uh, they're not common in the southern areas and so you don't get that as a source of infection for these ticks. And then, Dr. Wu, uh, quickly about why there isn't a Lyme vaccine. Yeah, the irony is that the, the previous Lyme vaccine, uh, because it didn't sell well, and so they stopped it. Uh, and if only they had enough clairvoyance to sort of look into the future and realize that this may be an upcoming issue. I, I agree with... Uh, uh, with everyone and Dr. Blumenthal that this is a an area that is ripe for research for sure because as I alluded to before, it's not just Lyme disease that we're worried about. It's all these other emerging diseases. Powassan is not an emerging, well, it, it, I guess it's been considered an emerging disease that's been around since 1958, but with the discovery of all these other diseases, I, I think there it's definitely an area that is ripe for research. And the vaccine, uh, vaccine development, I think not just for this disease, but all diseases is certainly needed. This is where we live. We're talking about Lyme disease today and a surging tick population with guests Dr. Theodore Andriotis and Dr. Ulysses Wu. Coming up, new research into a better way to test for Lyme disease. And we'll take your questions, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about why the tick population is increasing dramatically and what that means for residents in Connecticut and in the Northeast. What tests do medical professionals routinely use to diagnose Lyme or other diseases that can be transmitted to humans from a tick? Joining the conversation now is Dr. Paul Fiedler, Chair of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and Principal Investigator for Lyme Disease Research at Western Connecticut Health Network. Dr. Fiedler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First, tell us about the test that's used now and uh, what you're hoping to discover in terms of, of a better way to diagnose uh, these diseases. Sure. The CDC recommends a two-tier testing, which is a, a combination of tests that look for antibodies to Borrelia burgdorferi, the causative agent of Lyme disease. And uh, this is a, it's a very reliable test uh, when used properly and in the right setting. Um, which means that there has to be a you know, high predictive value that uh, it has to be used in an endemic area where there's a high prevalence of disease. And the test has to be used uh, with the caveat in mind that we're looking for antibodies to the agent, not the agent itself. So the body takes some time to develop an antibody response. There's two phases of the antibody response. First phase is called the IgM response. Second is the IgG response. And these responses, you know, develop over several weeks to months following exposure. And that's where the problem lies uh, in the field, that we're really dependent on the patient's immune system to tell us that they've been infected with Lyme. There it really isn't a very good way to look for the Lyme organism itself. 
And what research are you doing to change that? So at uh, the Biomedical Research Institute, uh, many years ago, uh, when Dr. John Murphy became CEO, we asked the community what we should be working on, and uh, they felt very strongly that uh, Lyme disease diagnosis was, was key to moving uh, the ball forward. Uh, Dr. Joanne Petrini has been uh, the uh, chief investigator for our Lyme disease registry, and over the years, we've collected many, many samples, over 400 samples from patients who have... Uh, Lyme disease, a history of Lyme disease uh, for blood testing. What we're doing is looking for the organism itself, and we've used a, a variety of different methods. Uh, the first is to look for very, we have rare cell detection methods that we actually designed for cancer cell detection. Patients who have lung cancer or breast cancer circulate very rare cells in, in their blood. And we thought maybe we could use the same technology to look for very rare spirochetes that might be circulating in blood. And in fact, when we do spike-in studies, we can actually find one spirochete in a whole tube of blood by these methodologies. And we have tested them in the clinical setting. And uh, we've also uh, looked at the, the mainstay of molecular biology, the polymerase chain reaction, to look for genes related directly to the organism of Borrelia burgdorferi, and that's where we're focusing our efforts right now. So it's looking for the actual genes related to the organism itself as opposed to the immune response to the organism. And how soon could we see this new test? Well, we're, we have a pilot study that was, uh, we're very encouraged by. Um, when, just as a word, when, when a patient first feels ill with Lyme disease and they seek first seek medical attention. The CDC's standard two-tier testing is only positive about a third of the time on that very first visit. Now, it will, over, over the next several weeks, many patients, what we call seroconvert, they will develop a positive test. In fact, most patients will develop a positive test. So it is a very useful uh, test, a reliable test, but it has to be used with that major caveat in mind. Uh, we've done a, a pilot study of uh, 20 patients in that, and on that first visit, we can detect uh, the Lyme spirochete at a much higher percentage than that. So uh, what we're hoping to do uh, over this coming summer is to really expand this pilot study to include 75 patients with what we call clinically certain Lyme disease. So they present to their doctor with a known tick bite and a bullseye rash, and there's there's no question that they have Lyme disease, so much so that no testing would be indicated, just they could go straight to therapy. Those are the patients we want because then we know they have Lyme disease. We'll follow them with the conventional CDC test, and at the same time, we'll look for the genes related to the organism. We're looking for five different genes, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to really prove what we've seen in our uh, preliminary study so far. I just want to say that you know, with regard to the other organisms that are carried by the ticks, the anaplasma and babesia, um, those, those organisms it, it have been relatively easy to detect from a laboratory standpoint. The, the problem with those uh, diseases is that clinicians don't necessarily think of testing for those, so they, they may miss a diagnosis. But once they think about the diagnosis, the diagnosis from a laboratory spec perspective is relatively easy. Both of those organisms can actually be seen on a regular blood smear, and they're both, uh, both of those uh, organisms are actually easily detected by the polymerase chain reaction. But for some reason, uh, Lyme disease uh, by the polymerase, diagnosis by the polymerase chain reaction, uh, standard technique in molecular biology, has proven very elusive. 
and uh, we think we know uh, why that might be, but um, a lot of uh, groups have tried to have a successful PCR test and have failed. Well, I want to thank Dr. Paul Fiedler, Chair of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and Principal Investigator of Lyme Disease Research at Western Connecticut Health Network. Uh, thank you for telling us a little bit about this research that you're undergoing. Thank you. I wanted to have Dr. Uh, Wu respond, again, Chief of Infectious Diseases at St. Francis Hospital, in terms of, of a new diagnostic test that could help um, uh, rule out these false positives that people see. Absolutely. I th- the key point in, in that wonderful discussion uh, was when used appropriately, and that, that's the key. You have to have a high index of clinical suspicion. Uh, is it possible for a disease to be both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed? Absolutely. And so what we're seeing is that I, I agree that it is definitely underdiagnosed, probably one in 10, tenfold uh, underdiagnosed, but also we're seeing overdiagnosis as well. So patients that w- we see that may have been diagnosed with Lyme, we're missing malignancies, cancers, lymphomas, autoimmune diseases as well. So the development of testing, we still go by the, the standard CDC, that uh, testing method, the, the two tier testing that was mentioned before. There are new testing that is in development, but a lot of these have not been accepted as reliable testing at this time. A good example is actually PCR testing. So the dead bacteria can actually still, the DNA is still present. And the way to actually look at PCR testing is it's like a crime scene. Well, is the crime still occurring right in front of you? No, but there is still evidence that the crime did occur at that point. And so I, I, I agree that there are areas that, uh, that are ripe for research for this. Um, the one thing I would be cautious is that there are labs that will offer testing for a lot of these diseases, and you're likely to get a positive result from these tests. So I would, I would focus on the, on the standard laboratories that offer these tests. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I do want to thank uh, Dr. Ulysses Wu, Chief of Infectious Diseases at St. Francis Hospital and Medi- Medical Center in Hartford. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. I know it was a far walk for you. <laughs> <laughs> also, Dr. Theodore Andriotis, Director, Andriotis rather, Director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, also Head of the Center for Vector Biology and Zoonotic Diseases. We appreciate your expertise today. It's been wonderful being here. Thanks to our listeners for joining the conversation. The show today was produced by uh, Jeff Tyson, and thanks to Lydia Brown and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.